This episode is brought to you by Recall Buzz, powered by VinSmart. Learn more about how we can help you with fleet recall management and maintenance updates, as well as capture vehicle history and VIN data. Give VinSmart a call at 1-888-950-9550 or visit us on the web at vinsmart.com slash businesses. Welcome to AnvaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Anva community. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the AnvaCast. This week, we're going to talk about a topic that's real central to preparing young drivers to be safe on our roadways. We're going to be talking about driver education. And to join me for this conversation, I'm pleased to welcome Brett Robinson. Brett is the president of Highway Safety Services and serves as the executive director of the American Driver and Traffic Safety Education Association. Brett's been involved in this area of driver safety for decades, and we are pleased to welcome him to his first appearance of the Amphicast. Brett, welcome. Thank you, Ian. Pleasure to be here. But driver ed, as it's colloquially referred to, is a real staple in American culture and many cultures really around the world. But when we talk about in North America, the idea that a new driver goes to that driver ed class, and we've seen it in different aspects of culture and movies and TV shows, sometimes parodied, made fun of. But it's in many ways, I think a lot of the safety community would say it's sometimes taken for granted how important that type of formal education to prepare a young driver is as part of, you might learn from mom or dad or an uncle or an aunt, but that formal education with a trained instructor to walk a young driver through driver ed is sometimes overlooked or taken for granted as part of the process. Talk to me about the state of play of driver education in North America. I'm sure it's not what it was when when I took it 25 years ago. So where is the temperature check in driver ed generally? And then we'll dive into what's going on with the curriculum. Okay, that's kind of a multi-layered question. So I'll, I'll start with, yeah, I do think we take driver education for granted. Some people see it as too much of a stepping stone. There's certainly cost associated in putting a team through driver education. But traffic crashes are among the leading cause. It's not the leading cause, but it's certainly in the top three leading causes of team death. And, and that's unacceptable. It's a tragedy for our society. It's a tragedy for a family when they lose a teen of that age. Driver education, absolutely an integral component within, I'll say, our whole licensing process. Within graduated driver licensing, it is an integral component of getting your license, but it is not required in most states. Most states claim they have a GDL program. I claim they have elements of a GDL system because the system is only as effective as all of its components and driver education should be one of those components within that system. So again, there are a few states that absolutely require driver education. We would like to see the numbers certainly be higher. So when you say they require driver education, what do those requirements usually look like when it's effectively integrated into a a GDL program? How does that technical aspects of that work? Well, it depends on the state. You know, every state is a little bit different. Certainly the Canadian provinces also very different than the process within some of the states. But it is required, particularly if you're under the age of 18. Of course, once you get to the age of 18, other requirements generally come into play. 
but they must have driver education, a course completion certificate if they're under the age of 18 in order to receive that intermediate or full licensure. And generally, it's around 30 hours of classroom and six hours of behind-the-wheel instruction and can include six hours of observation time. There are a couple of states that require eight hours of behind-the-wheel or even up to 10 hours behind-the-wheel. And then, of course, there are a number of states that virtually require nothing. You might have only eight hours of classroom, and you can't possibly teach everything you need to teach in eight hours of classroom. And in our AMVA community, Brett, which you've been around long enough to understand, the different DMVs sometimes play a different role interacting with driver education in their jurisdiction. Some are more directly involved, which may or may not tie to the requirements, right? There may be a requirement and there may be a DMV oversight role, and sometimes there isn't. For those that are less familiar with those differences, can you paint the the different scenarios that you see as you work with driver education programs around North America? Right. Some may only certify the instructors. Some may be responsible for overseeing just the schools, kind of the school licensing process to those having full responsibility, generally your commercial or your private providers. In many states, there are multiple agencies that oversee driver education. It could be a Department of Education or Public Instruction who oversees the driver education provided within the public school systems. But when it comes to commercial private providers, it can be Office of Highway Safety, Department of Motor Vehicles, or various other agencies. But the trend, I think over the last 10 years, we really started to see a lot of oversight of driver education moving out of the departments of public education into the DMVs or state driver license agencies. And I think that's probably going to continue to be a trend because the Department of Education, they want to focus on the core subject matter uh, within the school systems. And generally speaking, we say that driver education is not one of the core competencies, although we also say high school prepares our students for life. And what do you do every day of your life? You pretty much drive a car. So there definitely is a trend in driver education oversight, particularly for commercial and private providers moving into state driver license agencies. And just to be clear, when you say commercial providers, you're talking about for-profit entities, not, not commercial driver licensing. We're pretty strictly talking here about preparing new non-CDL drivers. CDL driver preparedness will be a whole nother episode for another day. (laughs) Correct. So I think I'll just use the term private providers for the rest of this interview. (laughs) And how is the experience of a driver education provider? Have you heard feedback that they have a different oversight experience, whether they're working with an education department as opposed to a DOT or DMV? Are they seeing trends in terms of how their programs need to function based on the different oversight structures? Well, sure. Some are more hands-on and others are more hands-off, depending on what type of agency, how regularly an instructor, in this case within uh, private providers, is actually audited. And we've probably seen in most programs, the school is audited far more frequently because they are considered a business. And the instructors are very rarely observe for quality assurance. There are, I don't want to name any states in particular, but one one in the Northeast, uh, instructors would 
comment positively because the program coordinator or the administrator would come out and conduct quality assurance visits quite regularly, and they appreciated that feedback. In other states, they'll say, well, they never come out and see what I'm doing. They don't care. Right. So for the ones where we do know what they're doing, let's talk about what's going on in the driver ed curriculum these days. I mentioned at the outset, I'm sure it's different than when I took it decades ago. Nevertheless, I remember things from driver education, both in classroom and my in-vehicle instructor that are still with me today. I would imagine, though, that the curriculum, some of the tenets of philosophy behind driving have evolved over the past 20, 30 years. So for those that haven't been in the classroom or haven't seen a driver and instructor in action, what might be different? You know, we know who most of our listeners are, and they're not ones that have taken driver ed recently. <laughs> what would they, what would be the same? What would be different from years ago? Well, driver education curriculum absolutely evolved. Uh, when you talk about when you and I first went through driver education, there's there's so many more issues that we're dealing with now that have to be covered within the curriculum just from distractions. Sharing the road with bicyclists, pedestrians, now we need to evolve to micro-mobility. Certainly sharing the road with motorcyclists, commercial vehicles, drugged driving. We didn't have that when you and I went through driver education, just the whole field of impairment. So many different issues, as well as vehicle technology. So curricula today are starting to bring in more about vehicle technology, and we have a, a major effort underway to help train driver educators on their role in teaching vehicle technology within driver education, and not really teaching how to use every single technology there is, but the behavioral aspect of using the vehicle technology correctly, not turning the technology off, remaining engaged in the driving task. And that's another area that has just evolved. The driving task is so much different, I think, since decades ago, because there is not only so much technology in our vehicles, but we also have just so much more information at our fingertips with our attainment screens, maps, directions, everything that's going on in that vehicle. Plus, our driving environment has become far more complex. We have more lanes. We have more different types of users, multitude or a variety of vehicles. So driving today is very different than it was driving 20, 30 years ago. The other evolution in driver education curricula has been in adapting to how we teach. Teens today learn so much differently than you and I learned when we were teens. So the methodology has to evolve. You look at just how attached our teens today are to social media, our cell phones, our smartphones. So how we learn is very different. And we've been certainly over the last year talking more and more about how Gen Z learns and how different they are and how we need to adapt. But we're already starting to prepare for Gen Alpha. Wow. Gen Alpha today, they are, as a result of COVID-19 and the pandemic, they're immersed in this virtual and distance learning, and, and that's how they're going to learn in the future. So let's talk about you know what you've learned over the past year and a half in terms of having to adapt with the pandemic. How did driver education programs cope during this, this time? This time last year, we learned very quickly that our you know, driver education teachers or instructors absolutely were never trained how to conduct virtual training. They did not have any idea how to even begin to conduct virtual training. 
and you know it's it's been around for a long time. E-learning platforms, virtual training. It's it's not something that is new, but our teachers were not prepared. And when the pandemic hit, there were about 20 states that required some form of online, including virtual training. As a result of the pandemic, I think it was just about 100%, at least temporarily, allowed for some form of online training, in particular virtual training. And I think once this is over, it really opened the eyes of a lot of state administrators to say, you know what, this virtual training, it, it does work. There are lots of benefits to the virtual training if instructors are trained correctly. And I think once we're past the pandemic, we'll probably have 80 to 90 percent will still allow some hours in a virtual environment. There are some topics that I believe I can teach better in a virtual environment when a student is immersed in a screen looking at different driving scenarios, video recordings, driving on the street as compared to doing it in a traditional classroom. Now, there are other topics that are probably best taught in a traditional classroom. So I think we're going to see more of a blended approach to teaching driver education, the modalities in which we deliver that instruction. But no doubt we had to adapt to teaching virtually. I think we're going to continue to do so in the coming years, continuing to offer more and more workshops on how to conduct virtual training, how to engage the learner in that process. It's not just talking. There are so many ways in which you can engage that learner in a virtual setting. So that was the biggest thing that we had to adjust to. Maybe the other was behind the wheel instruction. Of course. No different than conducting an on-road exam for a teen in a car. There were social distancing or physical distancing issues and Wow, we really had to adapt there for a period of time. Many states were closed down for offering driver education. And there were a lot of techniques we were able to pick up and learn during particularly those first six months of the pandemic and how to adapt to driver education. The biggest was we had to limit it to just the driver and the teacher. You really couldn't have observers sitting in the back. So they lost some of that observation time. And we suggested accomplishing some of that observational time in a virtual setting. Where you have like a, a camera in the vehicle with the driver that's learning and the other two students who would be in the backseat normally would be watching from home on the, the webcam in the car. Well, that where it's just pre-recorded driving scenarios where I can offer that training to 20 plus students versus just two at a time. Oh, yeah. So I can actually accomplish that observation time in a shorter period. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I remember, again, it's anecdotal, but I certainly remember being in the backseat watching was some of the most powerful lessons. <laughs> yeah. And that's coming back now, though, I assume, as we're starting to get to the other side, certainly as the students who are taking driver ed are now eligible to receive vaccines, I would imagine that starts to open the door again to return to more of that pre-pandemic in-vehicle scenarios. Yeah, I think we're starting to get there. I don't think we're really getting back to the observation time, but at least getting back to the instruction time for that team driving. Seems like we're definitely returning to normal and hopefully we stay there. <laughs> yes, yes. Who knows? But now at least if we if we don't, if something happens, a variant, new closures, you know, nobody wants that. However, now at least there's a little bit of a playbook to go back to. So we know what to do now. Oh, there absolutely is. One of my other roles is I serve as a secretariat to 
a national stakeholder group called the Association of National Stakeholders in Traffic Safety Education, or ANSTE. Uh, their website is anstse.info. AMVA is one of the stakeholders on this group. And in December of last year, we published a document called Stopgap Measures During an Emergency or a Pandemic, which highlighted some alternatives to doing things like conducting behind the wheel instruction, testing and assessment. That became a challenge that all of our testing and assessment had to be done remotely. You couldn't give an end-of-course test in a traditional classroom because you couldn't gather. So it also gives recommendations for how to do testing and assessment. And we have that document as well as other experiences in which to fall back on. Earlier, you mentioned you know, how every jurisdiction is a little bit different. And you have these different groups, whether it's at SIA or ANSI, where you're getting these folks together. What efforts are going on to have some level of consistent curriculum across jurisdiction so that a new driver learning in New York is approaching it similarly as a new driver in Missouri or California, knowing any of these drivers may end up living in that other state, certainly driving across those state lines. Well, sure. And that's an effort that started in the late 2000s in the publication in 2009 by NHTSA, the Novice Teen Driver Education and Training Administrative Standards. And that's why ANSTE was formed, was to maintain those national standards for driver education, which deals with administration, delivery of driver education programs, instructor qualifications, parental guardian involvement, and coordination with driver licensing. And incorporated into those standards are two attachments by reference, which are ADSEA's curriculum content standards and the Driving School Association of the Americas curriculum content standards, which identifies what elements should be in a driver education program. So really that effort started in 2009. Those standards are on the ANSTE website that I provided, anstse.info. And that is our goal. It's a major effort is to assist states in helping them to implement those standards so that we can establish some of that consistency. Are we ever going to be 100% consistent? No. But standards help us set a minimum benchmark. It's some uniformity with some flexibility. And also the great thing about our efforts in working with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, is that we have funding to provide technical assistance to states to help them improve their driver education program and implement these standards. No cost to the state. And, and is that the program? I know AMVA has been a supporter where a team will go into a state, look at their driver education program, do a gap analysis, and leave with a set of recommendations of how to improve the driver education program? There's actually two pieces associated with that. Number one is that NHTSA conducts state program assessments in about 11 different program areas, including motorcycle safety, traffic records, impaired operation. There's about 11 areas, and driver education is one of those. And we go in uh, with a, a team of five national experts, spend a whole week assessing a state's driver education program. And yes, Kevin Lewis of AMBA has been very involved in those efforts along with myself. And that is generally funded through your highway safety grants in, in cooperation with the state highway safety office. And either before a NHTSA state assessment or post-assessment, that's where our funding comes in. We can help a state either prepare for an assessment or B, once they've had an assessment, 
we can work with them to assist them in meeting their recommendations in that report. So as you and the folks in the driver education world look forward into the future, you mentioned earlier the role that technology is playing in terms of preparing the new driver how to use a new vehicle technology. As the vehicles continue to evolve and there's more self-driving functionality, there may be, some have predicted an increasing trend where young people may not want to drive because they don't have to. The vehicle will drive itself or car sharing apps. I don't need that skill the way I did 25 years ago. How is the driver education world preparing for some of those predicted trends? Well, first of all, driver education has perhaps the largest infrastructure in which to train any driver on the use of their vehicle technologies. And I've been saying for years, I think there's an opportunity for driver educators to partner with dealerships to teach even experienced or current consumers about the technology that is in their vehicles. Because we are trained educators. Not everybody can train somebody how to use something correctly. So I think driver education has the largest infrastructure in which to teach. We're certainly adapting our curriculum. We're adapting our instructor training materials to train driver educators on their role with this vehicle technology. And I'm also frequently asked the question, whether it's within driver education or outside, are are we going to lose our jobs as driver educators? And my answer is absolutely not. I think our, our role has become more important than ever. We will always drive cars. I've been in meetings where you'll have CEOs of companies and they'll say, well, in 20 years when nobody's driving cars anymore, Uh, I don't prescribe to that because we're still driving Model T Fords. We like to work on cars. We like to drive them. I do see in major metropolitan areas someday like Manhattan, San Francisco, L.A., where there will be a certain geographical area where nobody will be driving cars. But if you're in Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Montana, I think there are people who are always going to be driving because we like to drive. Well, I guess whether Gen Z, (laughs) as you're preparing them, will embrace that love of driving the way uh, the generations before them have. Or Alpha. Or Alpha, yes. So in my house, we have two Gen Zers, one of which is soon about to get his permit. And so tell me, as a parent of a Gen Zer, what should I know that I don't know as I prepare him for his permit and to go through the, the driver education process? One of the biggest things, and this is what we're working with driver educators on, you have to, to really emphasize and teach them to, no matter what, at all times, remain engaged in the driving task. Our cell phones have been a problem, at least for a decade, as a distraction with texting, surfing your phone, even a conversation. I don't care if you're on Bluetooth, can be distracting. We are naturally distracted as humans. We're multitasking all the time. That's also the case in a car. And I'm sure you've seen some of the campaigns, just hang up and drive. That's so true. We need to focus on the driving task. And as we get more technology in our vehicles, the tendency to become complacent absolutely increases. So, yeah, remaining engaged in the driving task, set aside all that other stuff. You have a responsibility, a legal responsibility for the operation of that motor vehicle. And you need to encourage your teens to absolutely stay engaged in the driving task at all times and do not 
engage in other tasks that even if they distract you for half a second, it's amazing how far that car travels in half a second at 45 or 55 miles an hour. And what could happen in that half second? Brett, was there anything about driver education and what's happening in that world that you were hoping that we could talk about today that we haven't had a chance to touch on? You know our AMVA members, you know the folks listening, you've been in and around our community for decades. What haven't we gotten to today? Well, I think we covered a lot of ground. One of the things I really would like to highlight is a number of decades ago, there were some driver education studies that indicated that driver education was not effective. And unfortunately, I think one study in particular had a couple of flaws associated with it. And within the last several years, we've seen several studies out of the AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety looked at Manitoba and Oregon's program and found that there was promise for driver education. Same thing out of Nebraska, promise for driver education in reducing teen crashes and citations. And then most recently, a study out of Georgia looking at Joshua's Law and the different approaches as to how a team can go through training in driver education, whether it was in person, it was online, primarily parent-led, and it also showed some promise for driver education. I think, unfortunately, because of the DeKalb study decades ago, a lot of us moved away from requiring driver education. But again, I think it's an integral component of a graduated driver licensing system. And to say you have a GDL system, you need to have all elements of that system, including driver education. Anything we can do to help reduce the unnecessary teen crashes, injuries, and fatalities in driver education is a major, I think, highway safety countermeasure that we have available at our hands that we should be implementing. GDL in itself has probably been proven to be the most effective highway safety countermeasure we've ever implemented. And I think that after that, everybody got a little bit lazy or complacent in regards to our GDL laws, and there hasn't been much movement, I believe, in about a decade in furthering our GDL laws, and I think we need to get back to that. We need to further those GDL laws. We need more parent-guardian involvement, and we need driver education in that process. Well, on that note, Brett, it's a strong one to finish on. So much more to do in, in this space and the related spaces, but I really appreciate you spending some time today talking about where driver education is, what they're focused on, and how the future looks. Oh, absolutely. Pleasure joining you. Thank you for inviting me. And to all of you out there, thank you again for being our loyal listeners. Thank you, our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin, and we'll see you all back next week on the Ambicast. Until then, stay well, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Ambacast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode is brought to you by Recall Buzz, powered by Vincent Smart.